Hebrews 10, 1 through 7. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, to the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Good evening, everyone. I forgot I had my mask on. So you're watching me wrestle with it here. It's been a year of wrestling, right? Are we all used to that? It's good to see you all. Good to be here at service this evening. We're going to continue on in our sermon series on the book of Hebrews called Holding Fast. The whole series we're talking about, we're trying to follow the flow of the author in the book of Hebrews who urges the Hebrews to hold fast their faith in Jesus. And a lot of that's because uh, these were Christians uh, who had formerly been Jewish And after they placed their faith in Jesus, at some point they started experiencing really intense pressure and even persecution to abandon their faith in Jesus and to return to Judaism. So the author of Hebrews wants to give reason upon reason upon reason why they should hold fast their faith in Jesus and not abandon their faith in Jesus. So the author of Hebrews goes through and says, look, there was Moses in the Old Testament. Moses was used by God to lead the people out of slavery in Egypt. But Jesus is a new and better Moses who leads the people out of bondage to sin. In the Old Testament, God uh, used Moses to lead the people into rest. And God is now using Jesus to lead his people into a better rest. In the Old Testament, God gave these priests who would be mediators between God and the people. So people could access God and experience the presence of God. And now through Jesus, there's a better priest that God has brought about who gives people this chance to be reunited with God the Father. So uh, point after point after point, the author of Hebrews wants to say, the Old Testament gives us all these examples of what God was doing for Israel But Jesus surpasses and fulfills all that came before. So don't abandon your faith in Jesus. If you abandon your faith in Jesus, you'll abandon the full fruit that all the Old Testament offered, that all that Judaism offered uh, in Jesus. So hold fast your faith in Jesus and don't abandon your faith in Jesus. In today's sermon from Hebrews 10 that Hannah just read for us, this is Hebrews 10 verses 1 through 18. So if you have a Bible, please open there and we'll be looking at that tonight. The author's specific point there is to say Jesus has offered a better sacrifice. In the Old Testament, God gave the priests to Israel and God gave this law to Israel and told them how to sacrifice in order for Israel to cleanse their sins, to be cleansed of their sins, and they'd enjoy God's presence there in the tabernacle or the temple in Israel's history. And the author of Hebrews says, don't go back to Judaism with all of its many sacrifices because Jesus has made a better sacrifice. So today's sermon, the driving point and, and the driving force of the message that the author of Hebrews wants his hearers to wrestle with is Jesus has provided a better sacrifice. Don't go back to Judaism with all of its many sacrifices, which were good, but they're not as good as what Jesus did, and they could never really accomplish ultimately what Jesus did. Jesus' death is the only sacrifice that could deal with our sin 
bring about our forgiveness and make us perfect so that we can stand before God and enjoy God's presence. So that's the message we want to dig into today. And I want us to do three things. First of all, uh, the first and most important thing is to understand what does Hebrews 10, 1 through 18 mean in its original context? What did this mean to the original hearers? The people would have heard this the first time. The people that this was written to, what does it mean to them? Secondly, we want to take a look at how Jesus' sacrifice satisfies our deepest need for acceptance, how Jesus' sacrifice satisfies our deepest need for acceptance. And then finally, we want to wrestle with the offensive idea of sacrifice. Most of our time will be spent on point number two, talking about how Jesus' sacrifice satisfies this deep need for acceptance. Uh, Most of you, if you're going to go out and go to Atlas or uh, go down to Shorts some night um, to grab something to eat, how many of you have a routine before you go out to do something like that? At home, there's, there's kind of a, a ritual or a routine that maybe involves getting cleaned up, running a comb through your hair, uh, maybe shaving <laughs> if you're a guy, uh, brushing your teeth. Maybe you spend a little extra time picking out the right clothes you want to wear before you go out. Um, now, that's a routine that we have if we're going to go out or go to a party or a get-together. Um, if it's a Saturday and you don't have class, you don't have work, you don't have anything going on, is there a different routine you have in the morning? Maybe no routine? <laughs> Maybe it's like, score, this is a pajama day. <laughs> we are not going to be exiting pajamas. It's pajamas from morning all the way up into evening. Uh, the reason we usually kind of primp ourselves and try to look a little better before we go out is because we like to be presentable to other people. Somehow or another, when we uh, like encounter other people, we have the sense of wanting to look acceptable or presentable to them. And that usually involves a lot of sacrifice and not just getting ready, but when it becomes a lifestyle, this can be expanded well beyond just getting ready for going out to eat or going to a party. Much of our lives as we get to be adults is spent really trying to make ourselves feel acceptable to other people, look acceptable to other people, gain the approval of other people. But the problem is it never really satisfies. It leads us to making endless sacrifices to try and become more acceptable, to feel like we present this acceptable image to other people and hopefully they'll approve of us but it never really satisfies us at a deep, deep level. There's still this kind of gnawing and nagging sense and question, am I really acceptable? At the end of the day, what we need is to be accepted by God. And it's only Jesus' sacrifice that allows us to experience that acceptance. But that language of sacrifice is really hard for us to wrestle with, especially these these days. Uh, Sacrifice sounds kind of primitive or maybe brutal. So we want to talk about this tonight. Lord, we want to thank you for Jesus. We thank you so much that uh, you've seen us in our sin and you sent Jesus to rescue us and save us. We thank you, Lord God, for all that he has done for us by rich, rich grace. Help us to sink into the meaning of Hebrews uh, chapter 10 tonight. Help us to see you. We really just need to see you tonight, Father God, and your son Jesus. Help us to find our meaning hope in what he has done for us. And then, Lord God, as we find that hope in you, help us then, Lord God, to want to love and serve you for your glory and to be used for your good purposes in the world. In Jesus' name, amen. So Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 8. Let's look at the first four verses. Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 18. We're going to try and figure out what does this mean to the original audience. Uh, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. So the author comes right out swinging. There's a lot in this first verse here. The author says, um, the law is a shadow of good things to come. 
So he's talking about the Old Testament law that God gave to uh, the Jews. Uh, You can read about this in books like Deuteronomy uh, from the Old Testament. And it's a a lot of laws that God gave to Israel about how they're to live and also how they're supposed to approach God, how they're supposed to worship God. And there were a lot of laws about sacrifices. And so the author's point here is that the law is from from God, so it's good. A lot of the time in Christian circles, uh, sometimes we can read the New Testament and the things that Paul will have to say about the law, and we all of a sudden think of the law as bad. The law is from God. It was his design. He gave it to Israel. It's good, but it's not the full fulfillment of what God has for his people. The law is a shadow of good things to come. So what he's getting at here is that the law was given, especially sacrifices, the ritual sacrifices that Israel would go through, they're good, but they're not the full fulfillment of what God wants to provide for Israel. They're a shadowy way of pointing forward to Jesus' sacrifice. In the, in the law, it would be good because it reminds people of their sin. The law is good because every time a Jewish person would have to go through ritual sacrifice, it would remind them of their sin. It would also remind them God is holy. You can't enter God's presence in this kind of trite or casual way. This is not like going to play with your playground, buddy. This is going before a holy, a righteous, a perfect God. And to enter into his presence is no small deal, especially when there's sin and there's evil and selfishness that lurks in our heart. There's darkness that lurks there. So the law is good because it reminds us that God is holy. The law is good because it reminds us that we are sinners. The law is even good because it shows us that God wants to make a way for us to have our sin removed, but there's a limitation to these sacrifices. These sacrifices, it says at the end of verse 1, these sacrifices are continually offered every year, and they don't make perfect those who draw near. They do not make perfect those who draw near. So the author goes on in verse 2. says, otherwise, if these sacrifices did make people perfect, they they would have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's the author's way of saying these sacrifices remind people of their sins. They remind people of God's holiness. These sacrifices even point forward to a time when a a true sacrifice would come to take away sins. But the very fact that all of these sacrifices are repeated over and over and over every year means that these sacrifices don't deal with the sin issue. The sacrifice of these blood and goats, or these bulls and goats, does not take away sins. It doesn't perfect those who want to draw near to their God. So then he goes on in verses 11 through 14. We'll skip forward to 11 through 14. He says, Every high priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The blood of bulls and goats could never perfect anyone. Jesus, once for all sacrifice, finally perfects those who place their faith in him and receive his forgiveness. 
when we're washed of our sin, when we're made perfect, we can enjoy God's fatherly presence. This is good news. So the author's main point here to his original hearers, to the, the, the Hebrews he's writing to, is to say, don't go back to Judaism. I know you're facing, facing intense pressure. I know you're facing even persecution, but don't abandon your faith in Jesus. Don't go back to Judaism, which is good, which is from God, but don't go back to those sacrifices because they only point forward to the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus would make, and that's the only sacrifice that will make you perfect so that you can stand before God. Don't ab- abandon your faith in Jesus because if you do, you'll abandon faith in the only thing that can make you perfect and the only thing that can make you right with God the Father. Hold fast your faith in Jesus. Don't go back to Judaism because you'll lose out on this rich fruit. It's like an apple. Judaism is the seed of an apple. It's good. But if somebody's offering you the choice between the seed and a full ripe apple, what are you going to take? You're going to take the apple. And that's what Jesus is. The author of Hebrews is saying, take the apple, trust Jesus, embrace Jesus, hold fast your faith in him, because that's everything that the Old Testament points forward to. That's everything that the law points forward to. And every sacrifice that these priests priests repeatedly made could not take away sins, but here's the one that can. Hold fast to your faith in Jesus and his sacrifice so that you'll experience that perfection. He'll wash you, he'll cleanse you, so you can be right with God the Father and be embraced by God the Father. This is good news for the, those who heard this uh, in the day that this letter was written. But for you and for me, <laughs> yeah, the point here is don't revert to Judaism. That's what it meant in its original context. What does it mean for you and for me? Have many of you been tempted to, to return to Judaism in the last year or two? Um, <laughs> most of us, put your hand down, Brooks. <laughs> so, uh, most of us don't face that temptation. A lot of us, we all struggle with, you know, this temptation to maybe not keep our faith in Jesus. We start trusting other things. But it's not usually because we're going back to Judaism. Most of us are not sacrificing bulls and goats. Um, if you're like me and you grew up in Missouri, that's an annual thing, but we call it the 4th of July, and it's the 4th of July barbecue, so it's a different thing. But most of us, this is not an ordinary kind of ordeal. What does this mean for us? Well, I think what this passage can really mean for us is hold fast your faith in Jesus because only faith in Jesus allows us to hear from the voice of God, child, I accept you. Child, I accept you by grace. If we don't hear that voice from God, we have this nagging and endless desire to feel like we are acceptable to someone. And if it's not God, it's seeking acceptance from other people. But when we try to get that sense of acceptance from other people, it leads to sacrifice upon sacrifice upon sacrifice to be acceptable and to be accepted, but it never satisfies us at that deepest, deepest level. So look again at Hebrews 10, uh, verse 11. It says, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. Repeatedly the same sacrifices. When you and I want that sense of acceptance from other people, it leads us to make repeated, repeated sacrifices to try and be accepted. In our culture, in our day and age, a lot of people struggle to take belief in God seriously. Um, it's not that we've got a bunch of angry atheists running around all the time, you know, spewing all this hateful language about God. The angry atheists have kind of calmed down over the last five to eight years, um, but a lot of people still kind of have this indifference to belief in God. And sometimes even in the church, we as believers in Jesus can struggle and be like, yeah, I believe the Bible, but do we really take it seriously? Do we really take it seriously? 
And for those of us, whether inside the church or outside the church, what can happen is if we're not really listening to the voice of God and taking God's voice seriously, we're not as worried about trying to be accepted by God, but we still have this desire to be accepted. And if it's not being accepted by God, it's trying to be accepted by other people. To have this sense that I'm an acceptable person, I'm a worthwhile person, people approve of me, I feel good about myself. We have a deep desire for that, but it requires all kinds of sacrifice. Don't raise your hand. But have you ever felt and thought that if, you know, five, ten years down the road, you reach some kind of career success that you're aiming for, then you'd feel like, okay, I have arrived. I feel like I'm an acceptable person. I feel like I'm a worthwhile person. I'll have attained my goals. I feel like I can, you know, feel good about myself. If it's not career success, maybe it's financial success, other kinds of achievement. Maybe it's having it all together, wanting to appear like you've got everything all together and you'll feel good about yourself. Education, hitting certain markers and goals there, or maybe fitting like a particular kind of body image uh, and kind of particular kind of physical attractiveness. There are all kinds of sacrifices we make to reach those goals and hopefully feel like we're accepted by other people. But it requires a lot of sacrifice. Sometimes it's just sacrifice in terms of time, energy, sometimes money, effort. Sometimes the sacrifice can be uh, going against your better judgment. <laughs> because you want to be accepted by a group of people. And you're like, everybody in this group is like making the decision to do X. My better judgment tells me that that's not a wise choice. But in order to be accepted, I'll go along with their decision. And that's not just peer pressure that, you know, we faced back in high school. When you get into the work world, this is going to happen. And some of you are in the work world. You know what this is like. Everybody in the office is like, you know what I think we need to do is X. And it's like, well, I don't think that's wise. It might not even be ethical and you're facing all this pressure to do something, and, and we might do something against our better judgment because we want to be approved of by other people. Sometimes we're willing to embrace self-destructive habits and practices because it means we'll be accepted by other people, that we really want their acceptance and we really want their approval. So we can make sacrifices ourselves in this pursuit of being accepted by other people, but we can also make sacrifices of other people. So it's costly for us, but sometimes it gets costly for other people. I remember one time it was here at this, after service, we were outside and having some kind of event in the parking lot. One of my kids was acting up and I was trying to get them to behave and all of a sudden my motivation stopped being driven by this pure desire to want to lovingly parent my child and all of a sudden my motivation was I want to look like a, an acceptable parent in the eyes of all of my friends at church. <laughs> That was my driving motivation, to be an acceptable and, uh, parent and like, to have a certain sense of approval as being a good parent, but it changed the way I was doing my parenting. Because in that moment, what I wanted was for my kid just to get it together. If they could just get it together, then you all here would approve of me as being a good, you know, a good parent. But in that moment, I wasn't able to be what my kid needed me to be. They needed me to calm down, take some time and ask, what's going on? Give me context. What's happened in the last five minutes to lead to this moment? If you've ever been around kids and you try to figure out what's going on, you have to get the backstory to be able to parent to a moment most of the time. But I wasn't patient enough to get the backstory to be able to parent to the moment because I just wanted to be able to look good and be approved of by you all. I wasn't able to be what my kid needed to be. Me to be. And that was a sacrifice for my kid. So when we want this sense of approval, we make sacrifices. Sometimes we make sacrifices for others. But the clincher in all of this is not only that these sacrifices are costly for us, these sacrifices can be costly for other people. They leave us unsatisfied. 
Have you ever reached a goal and felt like, eh, that's a worthwhile goal? I've reached my goal. I feel like an acceptable person. I feel really good about what I've done. Other people will approve of it. And a year later, you still feel unacceptable. It was not enough to last longer than five or six months. There's a guy who's a TED Talk speaker, recently wrote this. He says, I've interviewed some of the most exceptional and accomplished people in the world, including Nobel laureates, Olympic medalists, Oscar winners, and Fortune 500 executives. In the process, I've learned one surprising commonality among all these industry leaders. No matter how successful they become, they're still insanely insecure and want to be loved. These are people who have hit the highest that you can attain in terms of worldly success. And as this guy has been interviewing them, he says they still feel insanely insecure and want to be loved. Hitting these huge, huge markers of success and achievement don't cause them to feel like they're accepted. They still have this sense of insecurity. And the reason for that is that you and I, not not University of Iowa, but you and I, (laughs) you and I need to hear a higher and a holier voice saying, child, I accept you. We keep running around asking other broken people, people who are broken like us, to approve of us and to accept us, and it's never enough because we really need the voice of God Almighty saying, child, I know you, and I accept you. I accept you by grace. I accept you by grace. Until we hear his voice, we'll keep running around trying to seek approval from other people and making all these endless sacrifices, sacrifices for ourselves, sacrifices we demand of other people, and still never being satisfied Until we listen to the voice of God telling us that we are accepted by grace, we'll continue to make all kinds of sacrifices and an endless search to feel accepted by others. But God wants us to stop. He wants to say, child, stop racing around, seeking approval and acceptance from other broken people who are seeking acceptance from other broken people and realize that I've accepted you by grace. And that is good news today. That is good news today. And here's the thing. That's not just a way to help us to feel better over our social shame. We all have things that we're embarrassed about that we've done in our lives. We're socially embarrassed about. Uh, I think I've shared this with you all, dear friends, before. In junior high, somebody came up to me and they're like, Steve, just never wear plaid on top of plaid. Like, don't wear a plaid shirt on top of plaid shorts. I was like, I didn't know that was a thing. They're like, yeah, that's a thing. (laughs) It does not work well, my friend. And I was like, oh gosh, I remember being so embarrassed because I had prided myself on wearing plaid on top of plaid for a long time. Like, I I grew up on a farm and we wore all kinds of other things as well. And I had this uh, one shirt that had a fishing lure on it. I was very proud of that for a while. And then I was like, well, now I'm like kind of becoming uh, city-fied and I have this, this plaid shirt and these plaid shorts. And I thought it was like really, you know, preppy. And come to find out, I'm like a really, really, uncoordinated prep. It's like you're trying and it's not working. I was embarrassed by that. There were other things I was embarrassed by. I remember uh, going on a date in high school and I had braces and because of my braces, it was like so intense. I was like, well, I can't eat this pizza on this date because if I, you know what it's like, the classic, you you try and take a bite of the pizza and because of your braces, the, the crust comes with your hand, but the cheese stays with your face. It's not fun. So I was like, I'm going to be classy. I'm going to slice this pizza. And as I'm slicing the pizza, my knife slips and I throw my pizza across the table at my date. (laughs) We all know what it's like to have these moments of being socially embarrassed. We know what that's like. But underneath of that, 
way down deep underneath of that is a deeper sense of shame that we all wrestle with. It's not just being embarrassed in front of other people. Our deepest and most honest moments are moments when we stand before God and he's able to shine a light in his holiness, in his perfection, in his beauty, in his righteousness, in his truth. He shines a light upon every part of our heart and mind to reveal every dark thought we've ever had. Every very unloving thought we've had towards somebody else. Every moment we've been so self-absorbed that we've not given notice to other people. Every moment that we've failed to trust God or honor him and just said, you know what, I'm going to go my own way, God. He sees every moment that we've been sinful, all the darkness and the evil in our hearts, and that's what he comes to remove. That's the real shame that we need removed, and only Jesus removes that shame. And until we square with that issue, that we've got this deep sense of shame before a holy and righteous God, if we can't square with that, we're going to keep asking other broken human beings to approve of us to just put a Band-Aid on a gaping wound. We need the voice of God saying, I accept you by grace because I've washed you through my son's sacrifice, through his death on your behalf. And that's really good news for us today. But how do we wrestle with the the offensive idea of sacrifice, how to wrestle with the offensive idea of sacrifice. We find the idea of sacrifice a little more brutal, sounds primitive, sounds harsh. It's hard for us to reckon with that. But it's still good news, and I want us to to kind of focus on that. First of all, Jesus' sacrifice was really good news compared to other ancient religions. So in Jesus' day, in the day when the author of Hebrews wrote this book that we're going through as as a church, this was really good news compared to other religions. So let's talk a little bit about this. We've talked about this before, so I won't belabor the point, but... Um, in ancient world, there was all kinds of sacrifice going on. Almost every religion, there was sacrifice going on. And the way the dynamics worked were this. You provided something costly from, from your uh, property, whether that's animals or grain or something. You provided something that the God demanded of you. And if you gave the appropriate sacrifice, hopefully you'd get the God's attention. Hopefully you could get their attention. And if you made just the right sacrifice and got that God's attention, maybe they would open up the faucet and let a little drip of blessing come out into your life. So maybe you needed some financial help. Maybe the God, you offer the right sacrifice, get their attention, bend their ear, bend their will. Maybe they'd open the faucet, give you a little dripping and bless you in your work. Maybe you needed fertility. Maybe you were looking for God to bless your work. Maybe you were looking for healing of some sort. Maybe you were looking for some oracle to tell you what to do. If you go please the God, make some costly sacrifice, hopefully you can get their attention, bend their ear, and they'd open up the tap and let a little drop of blessing come out. With Jesus, it's very, very different. It's very different. I mean, even nowadays, there are some religions that do this. I remember in a religious studies class hearing about one religion where you go to a shrine and you ring a bell to get the God's attention. You you have to try and get the God's attention. In Christianity, it's very different. There's sacrifice, but the dynamics are so, so different. In Christianity, it's not that you bring costly items to make a sacrifice to God to hopefully get his attention. Christianity, this God himself has made a costly sacrifice while we were yet sinners and weren't even concerned with God. He did not have our attention in many cases, and yet he's made a costly sacrifice of himself in order to open up the floodgates of blessing. Not to open up the spigot just a little bit, let a few drops of blessing to come out, but to give us eternal life, 
to take away our shame, to take away our guilt, so that the Spirit of God can dwell within us, so that we can be adopted into God's family, so we can belong to other believers and be in a family, so that we can have purpose and hope in life. We can wake up in the morning and realize God has a purpose for you. He wants you to be used for his good purposes in the world. He rescues us from so much death, from so much meaninglessness and purposelessness, gives us hope and joy, and he gives us all of that by grace. And the way uh, the Apostle Paul puts it again is, while we were yet sinners, we weren't concerned about trying to honor or please this God. We were going our own way. We weren't even, he didn't have our attention. And yet, through his own initiative, he's made this sacrifice to shower us with rich blessing. Is that not a different picture of God compared to these other ancient religions? Not trying to suck out a little meager blessing by making costly sacrifices to a God, a God who has already made sacrifice on our behalf, even when we didn't care because he loves us. And that's, that's good news today. That's good news today. And it tells us something about just how personal God really is. Uh, Mindy and I were talking about this this last week. Um, why didn't God just say, you know, I forgive you all? Why did Jesus have to die? Why was there the necessity of sacrifice? Has anyone else ever wondered that? Um, why was there the need for Jesus to die? I honestly don't know the answer. Like at the end of the day, I'll probably end up asking God that myself in glory. <laughs> Maybe we can ask him together and, and see what he says. But one thing I know is this. We don't have this sense of how much God has bound himself to us without that sacrifice on our behalf. Because look what happens. When Jesus dies on the cross, Jesus is, is totally sinless. He's totally faultless. But at the cross, what does he do? He identifies with your sin and with my sin. It's like he binds himself to your sin and to my sin. He becomes so closely identified with us that he takes on our sin. He becomes sin for us, as Paul says. And he identifies with our death that we should bear because of our sin. But then as we place our faith in Jesus and what he's done, then we get to identify with his perfection. He shares that with us. And then we get to identify with his resurrection and his eternal life. In that death... In Jesus' death, he binds himself to our sin and he binds himself to our punishment so that then as we're bound to him, we can receive his perfection and receive his eternal life. You don't get that without him dying on the cross. It tells you just how much he wants to bind himself to us so that we can be in Christ, we can be united to Christ. That's how much he's united with us. And you don't get that by God just saying, hey, by the way, I forgive you. It says something about how relational God is and how connected he is to us. It uh, reminds me, a quick story, I've told you all this before, so I won't belabor the point on this one either, but I was working on the farm with my dad, we were fixing the fence, and there was a fence back here, and then our truck was here, and there was some other obstacle here, I forget what it was, um, so I couldn't go this way, that way, or that way, and we were working under uh, cedar trees, and these cedar limbs hung really, really low, so you couldn't see out from underneath. So it's kind of like being in this little, little hole, couldn't see out anywhere, working on the fence. I was about nine or 10. And out of nowhere, our 2,000 bull came bearing down on me. Sometimes the bull wanted to have fun with us as kids. Like, hey, it's a play toy. No, it's actually a human being. Please don't hurt me. <laughs> and the bull's like, I don't know any different. Let's have some fun. So he comes bearing down on me and there's nowhere for me to go. I can't jump the fence. I'm too little. The truck is here. There's something else keeping me uh, blocked from going that way. And I thought I'm toast. It's like, I've had nine good years. It's been real. <laughs> And the bull just kept getting closer. And the last thing I remember is my dad steps in front of me with a rod and nails that bull in the head. And he says, you get away from my son. 
you get away from my son. My dad identified with my danger to protect me from this 2,000-pound bull. He took on that danger in order to protect me in that moment. And that told me about how much God, lo- uh, G- uh, my father loves me. He's a good dad, but that, <laughs> that's going too far. He's not God. He's not Jesus. But it says something about his personal love for me. And that's what God has done for each of us in Jesus. So it says something about how relational, how loving Jesus is. But also, as we close, Jesus' sacrifice breathes life in today's uh, culture. It breathes grace into today's culture. Uh, it seemed to be a number of years ago, um, we were more culturally relative. Cultural relativism was holding sway. Everyone tended to think, well, there's your morality and your truth. And then those folks, they have their morality and truth. I have more, my morality and truth. Let's just let one another be. Like, just live in that live. Uh, there's no truth out there. There's no moral truth. There's no moral absolute out there. Just let everybody live and let be. And in that culture, God's anger over sin made no sense, right? Like, if everything is relative, what's God angry about? <laughs> if there's no, nothing that's morally wrong, why is God angry? It's like, Dad, uh, go have a Coke and calm down. <laughs> There's no moral truth. There's no reason to be angry, God. And if God can't be angry over sin because there's no moral truth, then it also doesn't make sense for God to hold people accountable for sin because there is no sin. And if God doesn't hold people accountable for sin, what, what sense does it make for God to send Jesus to die and to bear our punishment for sin? When moral relativism held sway, it didn't make any sense for God to be angry over sin, to God hold people accountable for sin, or for Jesus to have to die for sinners. And so a lot of people were kind of like, what's the point of Jesus' sacrifice? I don't see why that matters. It seems kind of brutal. It seems kind of harsh. But nowadays, more and more people, I think, believe that some things are morally right. Now, we are arguing a lot these days about what is morally right. We just log on to Facebook, right? (laughs) We have different opinions about what is morally right, but we seem to all agree that some things are morally right and some things are morally wrong, and we are getting angry When something happens that we think is morally wrong, we get angry over it. It's outrage culture. Uh, Slate had this web page up in 2014. So this isn't just in the last like three or four years. 2014 called the Year of Outrage. It was an interactive calendar that showed 365 days of that year, 2014. And you could like hover over each day and it told you something that Americans were outraged over that day of the year. It also had a little scale to tell you how outraged were they. So it was really kind of fun, but it shows us our level of anger over things we see in the world that we're like, that's morally wrong, and so we're outraged by it. But not only that, more and more people, both inside the church and outside the church, not only are outraged over things that seem to be morally wrong, but we're also willing to hold people accountable in really, really rigid ways, in really fierce ways holding people accountable for wrongdoing. People can lose their jobs for saying the wrong thing. People can be canceled if it comes out that they did something wrong in the past. Even if they seem to have repented or changed their ways, it can cause them to lose their job or be canceled. The Atlantic had, there was a piece in the Atlantic a few years ago that said some of the guilty in today's culture are overpunished for their social transgressions. They're overpunished for their social transgressions. So things have changed. When moral, t- moral relativism held sway in the United States, people are like, why is God mad? Why are people being held accountable? And why would Jesus have to die? Nowadays, it's like we are angry over moral misdeeds, and we will hold people accountable. So we're not arguing over the principle whether certain things are wrong, you can get angry over them, and you can hold people accountable. The whole question is, who's allowed to be angry, and who's allowed to hold people accountable? 
Is it God or is it us? That's the question that we're really facing today. And I think the danger in our culture, again, it can be outside the church, sometimes inside the church, if we are holding people accountable in ways that are vengeful, if we are holding people accountable in ways that don't allow opportunities for confession, for repentance, for remorse, for asking for forgiveness, it's a graceless way of trying to hold people accountable for wrongdoing. And it will only cause us to start to cancel people, write them off, push them to the margins, discarding of people in ways that are graceless and vengeful, and it will further divide us. And who will it leave left? Who will be left at the end of the day? Our culture, both inside and outside the church, as we understand that it's important to fight for for things like justice, as it's important to fight for uh, what is morally right, and it's important for us to be able to be held accountable ourselves. I need to be held accountable. We need to try to hold one another accountable. We need to bring the grace of Jesus Christ into those moments so that this does not turn into vengeful ways of trying to hold people accountable. We need that grace in our culture today to breathe life into these moments as we try to make right in situations where things have gone wrong. We need the grace of Jesus to breathe life into our time right now. When Jesus' sacrifice allows us to, to have our sins forgiven, what it means is when you and I have done something wrong, we can confess that Jesus' death allows that to be washed and cleansed, but we can be preserved. In today's cancel culture, there's less opportunity to preserve people. If somebody makes a misstep, there's no op- option for them to be preserved. They're written off. Does anyone grow up in church and remember uh, the unpardonable sin? Did anyone ever wonder if you committed the unpardonable sin? Like, did I do that one thing that the Bible talks about that if you do it, apparently you can't go to heaven? If you want to know what that is, let's have a conversation after church. I'd love to chat with you about that. But in today's culture, it's like there are numerous unpardonable sins for which there is no opportunity for repentance, forgiveness, remorse, or change. But Jesus says, no, I want to provide opportunities for people to repent, for their, for their wrongs, wrongdoings to be pointed out, and for them to find forgiveness And then for sinners to be preserved and not written off. And that's good news for every single one of us. Because before a holy and righteous God, the fact of the matter is every one of us deserves to be written off. None of us deserves on our own merit and our own rights to stand before a holy God and enjoy his presence forever. To enjoy his love and his provision forever. But God has paid our penalty through Jesus Christ so that we can be washed and preserved and have a place in his family And then may God teach us how to be gracious as we hold one another accountable in our world today. So as we close, I want to encourage you this week, if you're following through with us on our Lenten devotional, keep digging into the Lenten devotional this week, especially as we're leading up to Good Friday. Good Friday is this Friday. It's the Friday, remember, that Jesus died on the cross. This is a great week through that Lenten devotional to remember Jesus' sacrifice to reflect on his sacrifice and to remember only through his sacrifice are we accepted by God. It's a great week as you go through that devotional. Confess your sins this week. As you think about Jesus' sacrifice, confess your sins. As you go through that devotional this week, find comfort in Jesus' grace for you, his death for you, as I'll do the same thing for myself this week. And then as you also focus on that, then say, Lord, help me this week to figure out how to practice grace 
as I seek to allow others to hold me accountable for things that I've done wrong, whether in community group or in friendships here in church, and also seek to help hold one another accountable, but help us to do that in ways that are gracious and that shine a light upon the grace of Jesus Christ and breathe life into one another's lives. Lord, we want to thank you for this day. We want to thank you for your mercy and grace. We thank you for Jesus' death on our behalf. We thank you that you saw us while we were helpless, while we were sinners and far from you. And you took the initiative to make a costly sacrifice on our behalf. Lord, I pray that you would teach us and remind us day in and day out to stop trying to seek the approval of other people and to rest in the acceptance you've given us by grace. Help us to listen to your voice, your high, your holy and heavenly voice, and to hear that language, child, I accept you by grace. Help us to rejoice in that. Then put us in a position, Lord God, to stop making sacrifices to be acceptable to other people and to make sacrifices of other people. Help us to be in a position to love you and serve you and to be a blessing to other people. Stop being fixated about what they think about us and be in a position to care for them, honor them in ways that glorify you. For those who are here tonight who, who don't know you, help them to place their faith in you for the very first time. To find that deep sense of acceptance that they're looking for Help them to know that's only found in you and that you've made it possible for each of us to be accepted by grace. And then, Lord, we pray that you would use us this week for your good purposes in the world. Be glorified in us. May Jesus be seen in us and through us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.